the ACLU was none too happy about the comments we made last week on Today in Ohio about them walking away from the fight over the congressional redistricting. They felt it was an unfair characterization because there was a lot of strategy behind what they did and they explained it. We'll do a follow-up story about that strategy so that people all understand it, but they still walked away. It is the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with our cast of regulars, Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, Lisa Garvin. What a bitterly cold weekend to be coming out of. Yeah, it wasn't an outside weekend. It was just like, you know, rush from thing to thing and hope you get warm. Yeah, it's like, come on, when do we get warm? When do we get warm? This was way worse snow than I really had expected we would get, although they said it was a winter storm. Hopefully by the end of the week, Laura, it's supposed to be warm. I think you said 60 is in the forecast. Yeah, it's supposed to warm up starting Wednesday. So yeah, and, fingers and then go right back down again. So, yeah, don't hold your <laughs> breath. You'll get a couple of days of 60s, and then it's back to 40s. All right, let's start. This is a story that resonated quite a bit with our readers. How damaging is the shortage of therapists for adults and children in Northeast Ohio? And is anything likely to change soon? Layla, you and I have talked about this over the past few weeks, mm-hmm. about how devastating it is and how long the wait is to get in for appointments. Yeah. This, this story was a popular one with readers because I think a whole lot of people are feeling COVID anxiety. What's the bad news? Yeah, I mean, we have, as a society, faced many reasons to seek mental health support these past couple of years. The fear and anxiety of facing a potentially life-threatening illness, the remote learning and what that did to our kids, the loss of both human life and our livelihoods, and, and gosh, so much more. But so both the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals told Julie Washington that the demand for behavioral health providers is higher than ever before, and it's less stigmatized than it was in the past, but they just can't keep up with the demand, and compounding that problem is the way care is delivered. More appointments than ever bef- than ever are being offered through telehealth or video visits, and with that convenience has come an increase in demand for appointments. And children are facing an especially difficult time getting the help that they need. Even before the pandemic, there were about 8,300 child and adolescent psychiatrists and 4,000 child and adolescent clinical psychologists for about 15 million kids with treatable mental health issues. Then you know, the needs increase these past couple of years. Children are showing an increase in anxiety, depression, and thoughts of suicide because of the disruptions at home and school. And, you know, a November 2020 CDC study showed that between April and October uh, of, of uh, 2020, mental health-related emergency room visits for children ages 5 to 11 increased by 24% over the same period in 2019, while visits by 12 to 17-year-olds rose by 31%. So the question is, how are hospitals dealing with that? Number one, they're hiring more mental health providers, but apparently that takes a long time to do. So they're also switching to short-term treatment and integrating those visits with visits to pediatricians or primary care doctors so kids can have breakout sessions with a mental health care provider when they need it instead of being waitlisted for months, which I've experienced with my own kids. Metro Health has also, um, you know, has behavioral health services integrated into some area schools, which makes it easier to identify and treat students who need help. And the clinic is starting to book 
shared virtual appointments that group together patients with similar needs. So a therapist presents information that's pertinent to that particular issue, such as anxiety or coping with chronic illness, and then pairs off to speak privately to each patient during breakout sessions. So that's kind of an innovative approach to meeting this this increased demand as well. But it's still not enough. I mean, the, clearly the, the length of the waits is evidence of that. A retired doctor who sends us ideas from time to time is suggesting that the state should put together some accelerated program where it can get a lot of people in some sort of ability to do this, even if it's in the triage phase or something. I, I just, this is pretty bad. And like, you know, you've seen it individually, but we've all heard lots of anecdotes of kids having trouble with this because they're surrounded by the anxiety of their parents for two years and it really resonates with them. Absolutely. I mean, I will share with our listeners, my own daughter was experiencing tics during the pandemic and it took us nine months to get that initial Mm -hmm. appointment with the only provider in the Cleveland Clinic system who could diagnose a tick disorder for for children. Nine months, and in that time, her tick, you know, it subsided, it came back, it manifested in other ways. She had plenty to talk about by the time we actually did meet with with the specialist. But my goodness, I just couldn't believe like how long it took to to actually get some get some attention for this poor little child. <laughs> well, and it was your experience that got us to ask Julie Washington to look into this for the story that appeared over the weekend. It's a good piece. It's distressing because it it doesn't feel like there's much to be optimistic about. That there there are steps that have been taken to make it somewhat better but it's still very problematic. And with Mike DeWine, the governor, talking so much about the need for mental health services, you'd hope he'd find a way to hasten the increase in providers so that we can get beyond this this period quickly. Julie's story offers some really good tips for how to speed up the search for a provider, so I urge readers to take a look at, at that. She did a great job with her story. You never know what stories that we publish are going to resonate like this one. This one really did. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With Ohio becoming a state in July where adults need no permit to carry a concealed gun, what can we expect based on the experiences of other states that have gone this route? Laura, another good piece over the weekend, this one by Jeremy Pelzer, looking at what's happened in other states. But the distressing part of this is is how much fog pro-gun folks try and put on this issue rather than trying to put academic rigor to it. Yeah, there's not 100% conclusive data that you can point to that that says causation and and proof. And when legislators debated this change, both sides had an arsenal of studies. Gun control advocates pointed to analyses that indicated that move will lead to more gun crime and violence. Proponents touted other research showing it won't affect or even maybe reduce gun violence. And this is because, yes, Ohio's the 23rd, 
But of all those states, most of them have passed these laws, these permitless carry laws, only in the last decade. And there hasn't been enough time to really do conclusive studies. Like a Stanford University um, study found that the violent crime rate in Alaska rose since the state passed permitless carry. But on the other hand, there was a study out of the College of William and Mary that found that murder rates in permitless carry states have dropped. So it's like pick your data, right? It's there's there's nothing conclusive. Yeah, which is surprising because you would think that pure numbers would would play out here. And 10 years is a long time that Mm -hmm. in the states that have gone this route 10 years ago, you should be able to see some trends. But there are a whole lot of people, if it is bad, they don't want us to know it. And there are a whole lot of people where if it's not that bad, they don't want us to know it. And so we don't have the same universe of facts to work with. Uh, You could kind of find in Jeremy's story pretty much anything to support your premise without just saying, what are the facts? Right. Absolutely. And like I said, you can't prove causation, right? So we haven't had permalist carry in the last couple of years in Ohio. Obviously, we had concealed carry laws and we're a shall issue state where basically if you apply for it and you meet the requirements, you can get your your permit. But we've had gun violence trending upward anyway. In 2020, a record 1,764 people died from firearms in Ohio. Um, There were 1,762 in 2021. So even you can say, look, it's gone up in Ohio, but you can't point to the reason why. There are so many reasons that gun violence is trending up across the country. Right. And it, and it could be more of the proliferation of guns, the easy access to guns. And it has nothing to do with how people carry them. It's just there's a lot more guns out right. there. And so that could be what causes it, particularly in a city like Cleveland, where it seems like everybody's got a gun. There, it, there was one point made by a gun rights advocate that made a lot of sense that nobody's repealed these laws. So, I mean, if it got really bad and you could point to it in a state saying, look how bad the gun violence has gotten since we passed that law, you think there would have been a move to, to get rid of it. And we're not seeing that. And if Lisa? I'm not mistaken, I believe that years ago, Congress decided not to give any federal money to, for gun violence research. So we're not doing Correct. that at a federal level. The CDC is not doing that. Yeah. Okay. Check out Jeremy's story on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio. The Ohio legislature is showing no likelihood of moving the May primary to accommodate the gerrymandering lawsuits that continue in the moment. So what might a federal judicial panel order Ohio to do as a stopgap measure? Lisa, the the Republicans really want the federal courts to take this Mm. over because they're frustrated with the chief justice of the Ohio Supreme Court and they're flailing at anything they can get. The federal panel doesn't look like it's hungry to take over the case, but they do have an idea that could help here. Yeah, the three-judge panel had a hearing on Friday in Columbus, and they tasked Secretary of State Frank LaRose to present the legalities of shortening early voting by three days. He has to come up with that answer by today. I'm guessing at noon. Um, And early voting does begin April 5th, so we're a under the gun here, as we have been since this all started. Now, the three-judge panel says they do want more information on the impact of the court's intervention in this election. They are, at this point, signaling that they're reluctant to use the map that's been ruled unconstitutional, which the lawsuit they're considering wants them to do. They want them to take the maps that were last rejected, but they want more time for this process to play out. They're considering using the maps that are under construction right now and are due by 
by noon today, and they're also maybe considering a second primary. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if we actually get those maps by noon today. You get the feeling that the Republicans may push the Supreme Court to threaten them with contempt again because they so desperately want the feds, the federal judiciary, to take this over. Uh, There's another meeting scheduled today. They also met over the weekend without reaching a conclusion. A delay in early voting seems like a simple step to buy a little bit of time But really, we've said it over and over again, the legislature should move the election. That's the only sure way of guaranteeing the fair elections and the efficient process. But this GOP activist suit that the three-judge panel is considering is saying that using the rejected maps is the only way for the election to be held on time. So they're holding firm on that for sure. LaRose did order the legislative candidates off the ballots with an option to restore them if the federal court rules in a timely manner. But the the judges denied the plaintiff's request to add those back. So he, there was a little inroad there. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens today. Will they make the noon deadline? I wouldn't take any bets on that because they have shown no intention to follow the law. You're listening to Today in Ohio. President Joe Biden is opening the door to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. And as we know, Cleveland has a large Ukrainian population. So how many of those refugees might we see here? And is the community ready to help welcome them? Layla? Well, Global Cleveland President Joe Simperman told Sabrina Eaton that his organization has been compiling a list of Northeast Ohioans who are ready to help connect Ukrainian refugees with housing, employment opportunities, and and other resources once they arrive here. And he already has 100 names on that list, and he says that list is growing. Simperman says it's too early to know how many refugees will come to Cleveland as a result of Biden's announcement. A lot depends on how easy it is for them to get visas and and what are the terms of those visas and whether the United States will accept Ukrainians who intend to return to their homeland when fighting ends rather than focusing on those who want to stay here permanently. He estimates the region will eventually get 3,000 to 4,000 refugees, but he's predicting many will eventually return to help Ukraine rebuild because, of course, you know, they were thriving in Ukraine before Putin invaded. Uh, Simperman pointed to the Cleveland area's long history of welcoming people who have fled war, famine, and genocide. For example, he said Northeast Ohio was initially supposed to get just 440 refugees from Afghanistan. Instead, you know, we became home to more than a thousand Afghani refugees. So, um, so we will see what that number looks like once they start to uh, to to come to Northeast Ohio. You know, 4,000 is a lot of people. It is a lot of people. It is. And, I mean, to get an infusion quickly of 4,000 people is is something you really have to be able to handle. The other thing you don't know is even if somebody's intention is to return to their homeland after the fighting stops— this fighting could be going on for years. We have no idea the the this could end up being the kind of guerrilla affair that goes on and the constant uh, sorties going against the Russian invaders. So it could be a few years mm-hmm. before they would make that decision. And in that time, would they be putting down roots here? Would they be assimilating into the Ukrainian culture that's here? I just that could be a very interesting 
impact on Northeast Ohio to get 4,000 people. I mean, Simperman has said that we have, as a region, taken Ukrainian immigrants in in large groups before, but those were by the hundreds, not by the thousands. And so it's interesting. I mean, we have such a large, robust Ukrainian population in the Parma area, right? Uh, So hopefully that means that there is a big support network, uh, many open arms ready to help build build uh, build community for for families who are looking to settle even if it's temporarily but you're right 4,000 is a lot of people a lot I mean that is that's a that's a small city in itself <laughs> well the population loss in Northeast Ohio has been the subject of stories for decades and all of a sudden an infusion of 4,000 people that's it's right. an interesting interesting impact it'll be fun to cover that impact and and how people get along here uh i do it does appear they'll be very welcome you're listening to today in ohio has the rapid rise in food costs cut back on the number of families that the greater cleveland food bank can serve Lower inflation is hitting everybody particularly hard but for the food bank which has to go out and buy the food to feed the hungry higher costs means fewer meals served right yeah, absolutely. Not only do they have to buy the food, they have to, you know, transport it too. And the higher cost of gas is, is having an effect. And so demand is climbing while it's becoming more expensive to serve people. For years, you know, you've heard the food bank say that every dollar you give can create four meals, and it's kind of astounding. Well, that's down to three. It's becoming so expensive. So the food bank provided food about 300,000 people prior to the pandemic. That climbed to 400,000 in 2020. It leveled off a little bit last year to 343,000, but that need is increasing again quickly. At the beginning of March, they had about 1,900 households getting food. They topped 23 households, 2,300 households by two weeks later. So I think all of a sudden this is just hitting people. Uh, the, the stimulus money has run out. The child care tax credit has run out. And people are just seeing much higher prices everywhere. Well, we just talked about how we could end up with thousands of Ukrainian refugees, mm-hmm. and I imagine some percentage of them will also need to be served by the food bank. Uh, the The Harvest for Hunger campaign is coming up fairly soon. I imagine it's, it's happening, happening now. It started. Yeah. It's kicked off. So, so the messaging for that is it going to hammer on the idea of how much more expensive the food is? Yeah, I think so. And that includes four food banks in Greater Cleveland covering 21 counties. So, you know, if you go to a grocery store, they'll ask you to round up. You you know, you can go and give uh, in monthly increments. Giving money is probably the easiest way to help. Uh, but obviously, you can always deliver food, too. Um, they're already ordering turkeys for Thanksgiving, That 21,000 of them. It places it this early to get lower prices. Last year, their turkeys cost a, a $1.29 a pound. This year, it's $1.54. So just for turkeys, you're looking at $100,000 more for that. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling. And I think they also yeah, that- said that, you know, a dollar used to feed four families. Now it only feeds three. I believe. Yeah, yeah that's I, what Laura said. That that's the astounding fact is because they how many times have they used that campaign? Mm-hmm. One dollar served four meals and now it's done. Right, and you're like, I can only buy can buy like two cans of corn for a dollar, right? Like, here's my dollar. Do good work with it. So yeah. All right, help out the food bank. We say it often. It's an absolute good. It's a charity that gets the full support of Advance Ohio. We help with the fundraising. It's today in Ohio. 
What did Deshaun Watson, Jimmy and D. Haslam, and the Browns coaches have to say when they finally met with reporters to talk about the trade for the controversial quarterback? Lisa, I can't count the number of stories that we produced about this because there were so many angles to cover. This was the first public presentation so what did, let's start with Deshaun Watson. What did he have to say? Okay, and as you can imagine, everyone you know, presented a united front on the Watson trade during that press conference. Watson himself says that he wants to get back to the person he was before the allegations of sexual misconduct. He terms himself as genuine, hardworking. He wants to get out into the Cleveland community. And when he was asked about why he hired so many massage therapists, he says he really can't talk details because of ongoing litigation. But he said, you know, it was about social media. And then he went on to say that I've never assaulted or disrespected women. Now, he knows that he's got a reputation to repair. And he said that all I can do is show the true person that I am. I'm going to cooperate and keep moving forward. And he is not intending to settle any of the 22 civil lawsuits against Against him, he wants to clear his name. Yeah, well, the, the one answer that was a bit waffly to me was why he went with so many massage therapists. It's, that, that answer was, was unsatisfying. So J- Dee and Jimmy Haslam weren't in Cleveland when these, the press conference was held with Deshaun Watson and the coaches. They appeared remotely later and took lots of questions What did they have to say? Yeah, the Haslam's were told to give, they were actually advised, Jimmy advised his wife and daughters, and they also got advice from an outside person to say that Dee and the two daughters, Whitney and Cynthia Haslam, should have veto power over the Watson trade. So after extensive discussion with their daughters and his wife, everybody was on board. They are worried about the impact on sexual abuse victims. Dee said there were a lot of evenings they spent working through this as a family, and they say that our compassion for abuse victims is really deep, and they did seek input from female Browns organization members, and apparently they didn't hear enough to make them change their minds. They said often and often uh, they were comf- they became comfortable. Mm-hmm. They got to a comfort level. Comfortable was the was the word of the day because of what they said was an extensive investigation that did not include talking to any of the women. Uh, the NFL did talk to some of the women, and you've got to presume the Haslam's used what the NFL got as part of their background. But there weren't a lot of details about that investigation. I mean, they talked about their extensive investigation, but never really gave us anything to show why it was extensive, did they? No, they didn't. And But you have to consider this is continuing litigation, so they have to be careful about what they say. Uh, General Manager Andrew Barry said that private investigators that they hired got the full perspective on sexual misconduct allegations. They were advised not to contact the plaintiffs directly because it would look like it was interfering with an ongoing investigation i don't know though they're not a party to that to any of those lawsuits i mean reporters regularly reach out to the parties in litigation to ask them what's going on why was the nfl able to talk to some of these women but the browns weren't maybe it was the timing of when the lawsuits were filed maybe the nfl talked to them before they were filed the coaches also were up up in front of the microphone saying pretty much the same thing. You said United Front. They said they became comfortable with with 
this situation. And they also said that they're not naive. I mean, Barry said, we're not naive. We know that there's work to do, but they have faith that Watson will meet and exceed their expectations. Can we just keep talk a little bit about the words that they use? Because we had a ton of stories here and we had long quotes. I mean, whole paragraphs of what they said, but they didn't have details. And they basically repeated the same things over and over again, that it was a very difficult situation, that they worked very hard to become comfortable. And it's like, okay, if it's that hard, why do you have to work that hard to become comfortable with it? I just, they said they felt for the people of Cleveland. They didn't say why, and they didn't explain how they became comfortable. It just, it didn't sit right with me. It felt like a lot of spin. It felt like they knew this was going to be controversial and they planned a media rollout they had planned the words comfortable, 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 and hard, hard, hard. Yeah, and uh, and then I don't know how else you can do this. I mean, I think they probably did it as well as they could. I wish they would have revealed more of what their investigation found that gave them that level of comfort. I, but how do you say it? Like, we know this is going to upset a lot of people, but we don't really care because we want him to win a Super Bowl. I mean, that really wouldn't go over very well. Yeah, can well, I? Can I just say? Ahead. You know, I feel like. Guilt, innocence aside, because that's the thing everyone's like, well, you know, he in the grand jury didn't and whatever. This is about how how this affects the community and the trauma that this decision has caused many is unconscionable. The Cleveland Rape Crisis Center has received so many calls from people who say that this has been a triggering factor for them in dealing with their own trauma. And I I made this point in the editorial board roundtable. Colin Kaepernick, a talented quarterback by all accounts, has been banished from the NFL for years because he kneeled during the national anthem and team owners were concerned. They were uncomfortable (laughs) about how fans might not like that. Think about that dichotomy and the values that that represents. This is disgusting to me. Forget whether he's innocent or guilty. The way this is affecting the community is is all that matters. That's the end of it. Okay. And and I I think that there are a lot of conversations being had among families all all weekend long. I mean, my 11-year-old was like, I wanted a Deshaun Watson jersey. And we were like, nope. Nope, you can have a different jersey. Can't have that jersey. Wow. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Why are Cleveland suburbs seeing an uptick in people being shot with compressed gas-powered pellet guns? Layla, this is a weird one. What's going on? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) All right, listen. Anyone who is inclined to do stupid things because a TikTok challenge told you to do it should just go back to eating Tide Pods, okay? Because... This is now it's harming innocent people on the street. Westlake and other suburbs have reported an increase in shootings involving BB or pellet guns that might be tied to a viral TikTok challenge. The Westlake Police Department has investigated 11 of these incidents since February 21st, with most involving juveniles targeting pedestrians. In two of these cases, young teenage girls were injured. One of them got shot in the face with a BB gun. The rise in these cases involving pellet guns came at the same time that a TikTok challenge went viral online. And the challenge involves shooting at someone with a pellet gun, typically one that fires gel ball pellets, and then posting a video 
of it on social media. Mm-hmm. So Kaylee Remington reports that that Westlake investigators are aware of the TikTok challenge, but they don't have any firsthand evidence that it's the reason behind the uptick in BB and pellet gun incidents. I mean, it seems like a reasonable conclusion, and it probably wouldn't be too hard to find the video evidence, I'm guessing. Uh, the majority of the Westlake incidents happened at Crocker Park. <laughs> I know. Can you just imagine you're shopping along and you get I know. blasted? I mean, yeah. If you look at the, the the description of all the cases that are included in this story, there was, you know, one of the young teenage girls was like waiting outside of the movie theater and she's blasted by these pellets. No one has been arrested. This is the part that really got me upset. No one has been arrested in the incidents, but some juveniles have been banned from Crocker Park, which means obviously they've they've identified some juveniles who've been involved in this. I mean, that is some lenient treatment of this, don't you think? Considering well, you, considering that we got, know. No, go ahead. No, you you got to be able to prove it, though. You can't. You, it's one thing to say those kids are running around and we saw what we think were the pellet guns and ban them. It's another thing to charge them with a crime. You got to have clear evidence. And unless you have that evidence, it's much harder to do. So I, I'm not surprised if there's a double standard because there is a double standard that we should point out. These are, these are not the BB guns of, of Christmas story kind of fame. These have compressed CO2 cylinders in them that, that really give these things some velocity. So it's not, just getting hit by some puffball, it hurts. Yeah, and there are kids I'm hearing from my mom friends because I was like, oh, we need to do a story on this. Uh, th- I mean, there are kids in fifth grade with these things. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I would not trust my fifth grader with barely a super soaker. I'm definitely <laughs> not getting one of these. Okay, now tell me, Laura, In I've heard, in, I've heard that it's either airsoft on one hand or I've heard like somewhere in the story it mentioned Orbeez, which is a totally different thing. Is it Orbeez or Airsoft? What is, what's the difference, Layla? Orbeez are like those little gel things that yeah, they're like. I, are they still fired by compressed gas? I, I mean, my kids grow Orbeez so. in a little bucket and they're ridiculous. You don't have anything to do with them after that except squish them in your hand. But you know what I'm talking about? I heard these are like gel pellets. But yeah, that they're they're fired. I didn't know that the they had a, a, a gun to fire air. Orbeez. But now I know well, that's what people do with their million Orbeez yeah, once you have somebody, them. Somebody told me that this is the next like step from Nerf guns. And it's like, okay, but Nerf guns are not going to injure you. I don't even I, get, know, I could no. see how people would think of this as, as a Nerf item. But Airsoft, oh, is a, which is what Chris is talking about, is a different thing altogether. That is what, I mean, that's the Tamir Rice. I mean, that, that's yeah, what right. Tamir Rice had that got him, you know, that he was playing with in the park that... I mean, that's that's what got me so upset when I saw that these kids were banned from Cracker Park when poor Tamir Rice was in the park just holding the gun. I mean, geez, I can't. Uh, the right. story. <laughs> we are out of time. It's today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about some more news. 